you, Chris. If you want to leave your Bible open to John 7. <clears throat> this is the third time now in the Gospel of John where Jesus has announced, come to me and I will quench your thirst. The metaphor especially works if you've ever dealt with thirst or you live in a region where it's thirsty. You know, we're, we're so used to running water or shopping in these big uh, warehouse stores where aisles and aisles of water, spring water, mountain fresh water, purified water, aloe vera water, coconut water, vitamin water. <laughs> water is just coming out of our ears. Little did you know to invest in water back in the day, right? So, <clears throat> but once you are in a region of the world that's dry, arid, and before there was running water, thirst was a real threat. Alicia and I lived for many years, some of you know, in a dry and arid part of Morocco in North Africa. And um, one time, uh, friends of ours invited us to, when they were, during one of their festivals, they invited us to their parents' house out in the countryside. Uh, we didn't know where we were getting into. They didn't have electricity it was really uh, uh, far away out there, and we, but we, we, we love these families, right? So we, we go, we had a, really an excellent time, and the dad was walking us around his farm, and I realized their livelihood was an orchard that had been passed on from generations of olive trees. So as we walked around, they were all dry. There, was, there wasn't, he said it's been several years since they've had any crop of olives because of a drought they were going through. And he brought us to the shed where they had the olive press, and it was dusty and hadn't been used in years, and their well just glistened a little bit of water, just enough for the animals they had. And that was, I think, maybe one of the first times I realized, being that far out without city water, the threat and impact of it on your farm, you just, it just connected these two Water is essential for life, their livelihood, their well-being in every which way. And we had a great time with this family. Their hospitality was amazing. They brought in bottled water. And um, we had some great conversations just out of the, the hardship that they were going through. But think about this for a minute. Here Jesus is. He's walking at a time and in a region of the world where water is essential so you can see his metaphor, often a water would make sense. It would attract people. It would quench your thirst. Where is this water that I could get at? And the setting of John 7 was a Jewish festival. It's a festival of what is called shelters or maybe your translation is tabernacles or booths. So it was an annual seven-day festival that the Jewish people celebrated. It was um, kicked off, if you will, by Moses. So it's been a festival for 1,500 years that the Jewish people have been celebrating. And what they're celebrating with the festival of the tabernacles, they were celebrating, commemorating the time when God kept them safe during the times of the wilderness, when God dwelt among them in a tabernacle, and when before they had homes, they were protected. And when he provided food and water for them. That's what the festival was doing. It was 
and also coincided with their fall festival because it happens in like September, October. So their harvest of grapes and olives and things like that were also a big part that they were celebrating and thanking God for in this festival. And that's the, that's a, the setting of the whole chapter, is a joyous festival. Yet as Jesus walked around, he didn't witness a great harvest of, um, of life. He, he witnessed what he viewed as thirst. He witnessed dryness, deadness of religion. That's what he was seeing. And there's so much irony here that Jesus is at a festival where they're celebrating God dwelling with them in a tabernacle. And here Jesus, the eternal word, tabernacling with them at this feast. And he, I mean, think about it. They're celebrating God providing manna from heaven and water from a rock. And here Jesus is, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water right in their midst. And yet they're not seeing it. In fact, they're plotting his murder. Here he is, the bread of life, the living water, and they want to get rid of him. They misunderstand him. That's what we see in this whole chapter, just widespread misunderstanding. And Jesus looks out and he sees dry formalism, lifeless doctrine, a fruitless routine, unbelief, rebellion. Yet right at the last day of this festival, right at the, the most important day, he announces to them an invitation. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. So think about the meaning of this. Jesus, the Messiah, invites us to come when we most need it to receive the life-giving promise of the Holy Spirit within us. What wonderful grace. Living water for a parched soul. And not just one drink, but streams of living water. That's what the Messiah is promising here for us. So we're going to study John 7. We want to notice the, the two ways that we see this spiritual dryness, both in their escalating opposition and just widespread misunderstanding of who he is. But then, thirdly, we want to turn to this wonderful invitation by Jesus for all who are thirsty to come and receive streams of living water. So the first two really give us a context to feel the weight and the grace of this invitation. So let's look, let's look first at this escalating opposition to Jesus. <clears throat> In verse 1, we learn Jesus didn't travel to Judea because there was a serious plot to murder him. Uh, that's why he refused to go with his brothers to the festival. It wasn't his time yet to die. That was coming at a different festival, not this one. In his own timing, he's under the Father's agenda. He's not persuaded by their, hey, don't you want to be in the public eye? And this is a great thing. This festival, everyone's coming. This is a pilgrimage festival. Everyone's going to be there. But all their motives were all coming from one place. In verse 5, it says, they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in him. And this is what John said when we, read, when we first started the Gospel of John. In chapter 1, he said, in verse 11, Jesus, he's going to come to his own, 
And the irony is, his own people won't receive him. Truth can stare you right in the faith, and your unbelief will keep you from seeing it. That's, it's, it's, and unbelief is so easy, Jesus is saying. Look at verse 7. Their unbelief is, is the, like the world. He says, the world hates me. It doesn't hate you. You see, unbelief is easy because it's fitting in with the world. And Jesus is saying, I testify to the evil of this world. That's why it's not easy for, for him. But they were comfortable in the world, and they had worldly ideas. And that's what they were promoting to him. So it's important, it's important to realize there's a category of unbelief that isn't necessarily even struck, uh, struggling intellectually about the gospel, but it's just a simple reality. You don't want Jesus. You don't want him to be the Messiah. You don't want God. That, that's what's being revealed right here. I don't want Jesus as my Lord because he, he's going to tell me how to live my life. I don't want Jesus as my Lord because I'm comfortable with my own standards, my own way of living. He's going to point things out to me. So I'm going to avoid Jesus. And this, this escalating opposition wasn't just the worldly mindset like his brothers, but it was also religious unbelief from the Jewish leaders. I mean, they were going to, they were plotting to kill him. So the festival was intense. There was widespread escalating opposition to Jesus. This rage uh, all got started in John chapter 5. You remember when Jesus, when we were a couple of sermons ago, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And this became an intensely topic. Matter of fact, John 5.18 says this. Because Jesus did this, that's why the Jews began to trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So several months have passed since John 5. And this desire to kill Jesus has only increased. It's it's escalating. And listen how Jesus uh, interacts with them in verse 21. I performed one work, and you're all amazed. You know, they were talking about how he healed a man on the Sabbath, and they were still talking about killing him. You know, eight months or so ago. They're still intense on this. And Jesus appeals to them one more time. Um, you've been holding this desire to kill me for months, and it's only going crazy. Let me appeal again to you at how insane this is. In verse 23, Jesus says this. Listen to the logic of what he says. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? You can see what he's saying here. He's saying, if you allow circumcision for a male child that's born, happens to be born on a Saturday, it, or I guess eight days after that, it falls on a Saturday. So they're going to do circumcision according to the law of Moses to make him whole according to the law. The family feels obligated to do this. He says, you're willing to do that on the Sabbath. Why would you hate me for healing a disabled man on a Sabbath day? You can just see, like, and you, you know what he says about this? He says, the reason why you do this is because you, you don't know God. 
That's why you're rejecting me. You reject the Messiah because you, you don't love God, you, and you're rejecting me because you don't want me over you. And this is constantly this theme that even the prophets in the Old Testament warn the people about, warn the very people Jesus is talking to, their, their, their ancestors. Jer- the prophet Jeremiah <clears throat> said this, my people have committed two evils. They've abandoned me, the fountain of living water, to hew out cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. So we, the two evils we do, and that he's, Jeremiah is speaking about, is one, rejecting God as our fountain of living water, but then secondly, we replace him. We replace him with broken cisterns that can't even hold water. That's the idolatry of our heart. That's what unbelief does. We abandon the Lord and his provision. We, we worship false images. And this whole festival, this whole ritual has replaced the Lord. He's, he's saying this is idolatry, what's happening here. If, we have a, if you have a sense of satisfaction from outward religious performance without the worship of our triune God, that's idolatry. We're turning to, from this to, to the world. And Jesus is offering living water. So this is just one area. We're, we're just looking at one of the, the one area where we see the spiritual dryness is just this escalating opposition to Jesus. And the second area that really we'll see throughout the chapter is widespread misunderstanding. In verse 12, you can kind of see this conversation that there's a lot of muttering about Jesus. Some said he's a good man. Others said, oh, no, no, he's deceiving people. So they, they're having this disagreement. In the NIV, it says there was widespread whispering for fear of the Jews. They weren't really talking publicly, but the Jews were interacting. There are probably 16 or so questions being asked in this chapter. And you know what they're all about? Who the Messiah is. They were all about uh, who the Messiah is. And so John gives us the chapter. There's three timestamps that I think are helpful just to observe. And you may have noticed it. So verse 2 mentions that it was the beginning of the festival. Verse 14 mentioned the festival was halfway over. And then verse 37 says the last day of the festival. Jesus speaks. So this seven-day festival that Jesus came to, um, he began teaching in verse 14, and it started quite the stir. <laughs> there was a lot of interactions around who the Messiah is as Jesus was speaking. And what it revealed was widespread misunderstanding, confusion, and debate. All right, so <clears throat> test yourself for a minute. So imagine... Uh, It's Christmas holiday, let's say, and you're invited to two events over the holiday. One event you go to um, Christmas, they did not talk religion at all. There was zero reference. They worked very hard to not (laughs) talk about anything about Jesus. Um, It was not mentioned at all. No, it was all dead in the water with, with, uh, with Jesus. The other event you went to, they talked about religion the whole time, but it was all debated and confusing. And there was doubts 
and disagreements. So those two events, which one would you enjoy being at the most? Now, some of you hate any kind of arguments. <laughs> so you'd be like, just give me that first one. I'm just going to live with it. There'd be peace or whatever. But notice, though, missionally speaking, that second one, while it's crazy difficult, all the confusion and misunderstanding and debates and arguments, that's where God is working. So that is one of the bright uh, angles to this chapter is that's exactly what happened. When Jesus started teaching in verse 14, it just began to roll. They were all talking about the Messiah, and none of them knew what it meant or what it meant. So we don't have time for this per se, but I just want to mention three of the common questions that came out in these conversations. They're very interesting. The first one was in verse 15, when the Jews were amazed and said, how is this man so learned that he, <clears throat> since he hasn't been trained, they're kind of getting at, where did you get your credentials? You know, Because in their system, a rabbi would have been taught by another rabbi. So a rabbi might be in a region and say, oh, I'm from this school of rabbi. A very earthly mindset thinking. And Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Verse 16, my teaching is a mine, but it's from the one who sent to me. Okay? They're thinking, what school are you from? And Jesus is saying, my diploma, my credentials, it's from heaven. So I don't know what earth you're from, but I came from the one who sent me. That's my credentials. Another question comes up in verse 27, where they're just trying to get at, where are you from? So, because at the end of verse 27, they say, the Messiah, we won't know where he's from. You, we know where you're from. I mean, your half-brothers are here. So there's some, we have some lineage about you. And Jesus, how does Jesus reply? Kind of, you see it in verse 28, 29. Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I'm from, yet I have not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. So like the first question, what are your credentials? Jesus is saying, I'm from heaven. This one is, where are you from? I'm from heaven. I come from the one who sent me. And this is a divine claim. Jesus is making, I mean, <clears throat> they knew his earthly lineage, but here he's claiming, just like uh, John set it up in John 1, the word was God, the word was with God, and the word became flesh. Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, I have preexisted. And they want to kill him. They get the temple police to arrest him. He avoids this arrest. They can't get a hold of him. In verse 30, that was happening. But he says something very interesting here about them. He, in verse 20, he says, the reason why you don't know me or don't understand me is because you don't know God. Think of this claim. If you don't know God, you won't recognize him. If you don't know God, you won't see him when he comes to you. That's what Jesus is saying. If, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When you hear my teaching, it's just according to God. If you see how I view things and who I am, it's God in your midst. 
and they don't see it. That's why they're, see, they don't have a love for God. That's why they're trying to kill him. They don't want God to be like that. They don't want God to be God. They're going to kill him. They, they don't want a Messiah like the Lord. They want, they want one according to their expectations. They want to they work religion in their own way. They don't want God's truth. They want to make up their own. And they're struggling with Jesus, left and right. Very confusing. Another, a third question comes up. So these, um, <clears throat> the temple police met with him, and they said in verse 33, Jesus talked with them, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, because where I am, you cannot come. So it created this question when the temple police came back to the Jewish leaders. They said, hey, he's going where we can't find him. And they're all like, where is he going? That's the question. Where is Jesus going? And guess what Jesus said? I'm going to the one who sent me. <laughs> so he said, what are your credentials? My credentials are the one who sent me. Um, where are your, what are your origins? He goes, I'm from the one who sent me. Where are you going? I'm going to the one who sent me. All his answers are heavenly. They're eternal. And all they're thinking is earthly. They can't get beyond anything he's saying. There's widespread confusion about the Messiah. In fact, they said, it's kind of humorous. They said, oh, if, we, if he's going to a place we can't go, he must be going to the Gentiles, the Greeks, to reach out to them because we wouldn't go there. That's the last place we would go. It just shows you everything they're thinking, this misunderstanding. So, so imagine being there as a believer. You're in this festival. There's a escalating opposition against Jesus. There's widespread confusion, disagreement, and really getting so little traction of teaching this group. Would you even stay? Would you stay the whole week? He did. He stayed the whole time, interacting over this. This lasted for days. And this really kind of helps us kind of get a feel for how significant this invitation was in verse 37. So let's, let's turn to this third point, this wonderful invitation. In light of all we just were looking at, look at how Jesus stayed there with them this whole time. And let's read it once again in verse 37. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he cried out. So he, this is loud. He, he yelled this. On the, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. And he said this about the Holy Spirit. Each day of the feast, there was a water ceremony. Remember, they're commemorating this time of God providing manna from heaven and water from a rock. They're, they're, they're celebrating this wilderness saving through Moses. And every day they had libations. They had like a ceremony with water. So the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. They'd have a gold, like gold vessel. 
and they would parade. They'd have like a procession back up to the temple, and they'd pour out the water every day of the festival. And the seventh day, they did it seven times. And here it is, the last day, the most important day, with this water ceremony. They're pouring it out. The festival's over. It just ended. I think it raises a good question, like, as the festival's over, do you feel more satisfied? Did you feel you're, you were quenched? Would you be, you know, packing up your little makeshift shelter and getting your stuff, going back home? Would you, would you feel more satisfied? Was that, a, was that a great feast to fill your soul? Or were you even more thirsty? Were you even more desperate as it ended? Do you feel even more lost, more hungry for God to work? And Jesus is right there with them. He stands up and he yells, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. He's inviting them to this great salvation that is new. So right in this moment of your deepest need, right in this moment where religion didn't quench your thirst and other things didn't help you, at that moment, the silence was felt, he spoke in an invitation, a warm, a gracious invitation. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Think of the welcome this is. Think of, think of how this needs to be heard, you know, to each generation, each family, each culture. That's the invitation is the, is the ripple effect around the world. And if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, Jesus said. Right when you most need it, right when you really realize, I am so parched, he alone provides this answer. Um, Jesus is wanting to get our attention. He's speaking loudly. He's shouting this. He's wanting it to connect. And not just to offer a cup of water, but streams of living water. He's wanting to do something brand new. Something they only imagined would be the case one day. Like Isaiah 58 prophesied, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Man, they had that in their background, and now's the time. This is a fulfillment happening. This is something Jesus is doing. He's bringing in, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water, part of his messianic kingdom, part of the kingdom Jesus brings. I'm gonna fill, I'm gonna stream living water in my people. They're gonna be new. There's gonna be life in them. There's gonna be change and transformation. That's, that's the beauty of it. The Messiah, here he is. The irony of this is incredible. Because as they're bringing these uh, water vessels, going around seven times, they're singing the Psalms. They're, they're playing trumpets. They're rejoicing. They're celebrating all these truths. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm actually fulfilling all this. Come to me. You can just imagine him looking at this like, this all points to me. Would you see it? Would you believe it? All these people 
He's, he's, the Messiah invites us to come to him, to receive the life-giving promise of the Holy Spirit within us. Let me just give four quick reflections of the promise of life Jesus brings through the Spirit, just from these verses. First one is, right away, this eternal life Jesus is promising, he's a source of it. This is centered around him. He's saying, come, coming, think about it, coming and drinking Jesus is what happens when you believe in him. It's what believe means. Too often, we generically have the idea of religion. You know, it's an idea of a savior or idea. It's the idea of being rescued. And Jesus is saying, no, come to me a real, the real savior, the real person. Come and drink of me. So he's saying, embrace me fully. Only partake of this fountain of living water. So that means you're turning from other streams that are broken cisterns, other distractions, other false gods and idols. We're, we're turning. He's saying, believe in me. Believe in me as your Messiah. Believe in me as your Lord. Give me all of it. That's what he's saying. And I'm the source of this new life. I'm going to unleash something in the world that has never been done before through the Holy Spirit. And I'm the Messiah has come. This, so he's the source of this. Secondly, true spiritual life is welcome to anyone who believes. This is an open invitation to anyone. He's saying this to all of them, to the Jewish leaders, to the temple police, to the crowd, to children, uh, and anyone who's there because they've all traveled from far. To Jew and Gentile, his heart goes out. Whoever believes in me, so think of saving faith as the mouth of your soul. Faith is receiving. It's dry ground receiving rain. That's what faith is. It's just, it's soaking in what he gives. There's no work in it. It's receiving. It's accepting. It's believing my dryness. This is what I need in him. So that's the invitation, is to come by faith and faith alone in Christ for anyone. And this invitation is still today. So if you're not a follower of Christ, if you'd say, oh, I've never, I've never actually drank of Christ. I haven't come and fully embraced Jesus. This invitation, he is still here. This is still for us. Anyone who has not given yourself fully to Jesus, he's saying, come, come now. Drink of me. Turn away from everything else. And trust me, I'm the source of the life you need. I'm the source of living water for your dry soul. And what a wonderful invitation that is. A third reflection, the Christian life includes an inner transformation by the Spirit. Notice you're not becoming a Christian and then, hey, I'll see you when you go to heaven. Have a nice life. It's no, I'm coming to actually indwell you and we have some work to do. <laughs> I'm going to change your life. If you're genuinely a Christian, that means you've been born again, like we learned in John 3. You're a new creature. There's something new going on. The Spirit is in you. You receive the Spirit through faith in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the Christian life. And this inner transformation, which begins with regeneration, continues. It's a, 
streams of living water. This is a river. There's a lot of life that's going to happen. So picture the fruit of the Spirit coming in you. This is what Paul talked about in Galatians. like, you know, where before you were dry, right? And these changes happen. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Man, this isn't from you. I didn't create, I didn't do these things if they're in me. In some measure, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what the Spirit is doing in our lives. He's watering this, our souls like a garden and fruits coming. There's water. That's the metaphor we're to, we're to understand about the Spirit's work is it's water for our lives. It might remind you of Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1? The psalm describes two people. The unrighteous person follows the counsel of the ungodly. They are like shaft, dry bark that's blown along by the wind versus the righteous person who is right with God through faith in Jesus. This righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. That's what the Christian life includes, is that your roots, the, our heart goes to the stream of living water and it gives life to us. So the point Jesus is making at a very religious festival, no matter how religious you are, if you don't, if you haven't come to me to drink and you don't have the spirit in you, which is, you get both, in Jesus, you're not a follower. You're not, your religion isn't helping you. It isn't saving you. You need to be rescued. And that's only through me, Jesus says. And by the Spirit, there's going to be some changes that come through faith. And these changes are important. I mean, think of a house on the Fox River. We have acres of land. And yeah, the water's right there. So maybe there's parts of his yard that he's cultivated, and we're really seeing a good crop. But what if there's parts of his yard neglected, distracted, not tending, cultivating? You know, I mean, the Lord involves us in the work of the Holy Spirit. So to see a full bumper crop, 30, 60, 100-fold, we want to tend the whole yard, our whole lives, asking the Holy Spirit to constantly work. Uh, Hosea was speaking of this in the Old Testament when he said, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. Think of that in your areas of our life. No room is locked off if you're a Christian of your life. No room is locked off to Jesus. There's no part of our yard he doesn't care about. And we don't want to just ignore these things. When the Spirit prompts a conviction, when he brings attention to these things, and when we're in Bible study with one another, things will come up. Yeah, I need to deal with that. I need to confess that sin. I want the Lord to get a hold of me here. That's normal Christian life. That's the Holy Spirit working through the church, through reading Scripture, meditating on God's Word, and praying with one another. And that's what we want to cultivate more and more. And that's what he's promising to this. A fourth reflection, just to end here, is that a river of living water in your life, it's going to come out. It's got to. 
These are streams of living water. So the words you share could be life-giving to someone. The care you give, the concern, your heart towards people, this, this is, it's going to flow out, and you're on mission with Jesus. That's part of what Jesus is doing. He's finding people to rescue them out of darkness, but then transform them and include them in a ministry that he has for them to, to minister to others. Isn't that exciting that God would actually work through us to minister to people. When we realized, hey, I was thirsty, I was parched, he was my cure, 100%, and I want to help you. I, my heart's for you. That's the glory of what he gives us in Jesus Christ. So let's give this, uh, let me pray these things. Lord.